Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Bakra, Head of Non-Dollar Rate Strategy, and I'm joined today by our Global Market Specialists, Dan Navruzzi and Joanne Spadigam. Um, as usual, not always, but going to start with the US because um, I think this week we've been in a bit of a holding pattern. I feel like every day on the morning call this week I've said, oh, we're just waiting for US inflation on Thursday. Uh, and we're finally here on Thursday <laughs> and we've had US inflation. Uh, it perhaps wasn't the um, market moving event that we were all hoping that that it might be. Um, Jan, do you want to talk us through what your key takeaways are from from that report? Yeah, gladly. So, uh, and and like you, we were discussing even before the call. The market reaction was almost a little bit puzzling because on the on the headline, which you know, headline CPI, which includes energy and food prices and and the rest of the components as well, uh, that came a little bit stronger than consensus at 03 percent month on month, uh, largely because energy prices had increased uh, in the reading, while most forecasters expected to be kind of close to flat. Uh, uh, but the core CPI was kind of bang on consensus at 0.3. It was a true 0.3, you know, even if you look at the unrounded numbers. Uh, of course, year-on-year readings continue to come down because this time last year, so, you know, we're talking about the December 2022 readings, and around that period, inflation was actually, uh, you know, increasing at a pretty solid pace. So when you calculate year-on-year returns, of course, you have to start dropping some of these uh, numbers that fall out of the 12-month period. So, uh, the the year and year figures will come down purely as a matter of uh, as a matter of you know, base effects falling off. So overall, it doesn't really change the the bigger picture that much. It wasn't too different than consensus, uh, as as a lot of you know listeners will know. The Fed and generally the economics community tends to tends to overlook the uh, the energy and food uh, part on a monthly basis, given how exogenous those shocks can be and how uh, volatile those components are. So far was kind of what we expected a little bit. Actually, I should say a little bit firmer, right? And just looking what uh, looking into the index and what caused the firmness versus the softness. Uh, some of the, I guess, like the good news, I should say, core goods, again, flattened the month. Uh, we've, we've been seeing kind of deflationary impulse from that side, not disinflation, deflationary from core goods. Uh, this month it was flat, uh, which you know, pre-pandemic the trend was for disinflation to come from uh, from the goods side. So we're still on on track. However, used car prices increased 0.5 percent month on month. Uh, we expected them to show a slight decline, so that was a little bit of a surprise for us. And when I say surprise, you know, we we forecast all these components from uh, third-party like alternative data vendors, things that regress well against uh, against these. Uh, for example, used car prices historically well. There's a lot of data sources that can go into it. So that was a little bit surprising. Uh, you had an increase in things like travel components, so insurance, travel-related components, uh, medical services boosted CPI. Uh, so that was the source of strength. But uh, I, I should spe- uh, I should you know stress things like airfares are extremely volatile month-on-month basis. Yes, they display a trend over a like a three to six month period but on a monthly basis th- those tend to be pretty volatile on the flip side some of the good news were that uh we had things like rents coming down right so uh that was a you know pretty welcome development given they had been stagnating for the last couple of months and we know from uh, new tenants indices or uh, data providers like zillow in the us and uh, uh and, and other third-party vendors that 
uh, rents are in fact closer to zero percent over the last year, as opposed to like the six percent implied from the from the CPI. So we expect that to to kind of be reflected in the official index with a lag, and it's going that direction. Uh, I'm not going to kind of start slicing and dicing too much, but those kind of fell to 0.4 a month. Uh, the rent measures fell to 0.4 on a monthly basis. So uh, it's a welcome development. Uh, and the index, when you sum all those things up, uh, it was like 0.3. So does it change too much the picture? Not really. Uh, it's it's it, For the Fed, it's probably the same path onward. We still think March is a little too soon for rate cuts, but the rate, the pricing uh, for, for that contract didn't really you know, change all that materially. Uh, we still have to see how this impacts the Fed's preferred inflation me- measure, the, the PCE index, personal con- uh, consumption expenditures. Uh, and we think it will be slightly lower given how CPI c- tends to transfer into uh, PCE. But we have to see the PPI numbers, which I, I don't have yet at the time of recording. So uh, once we get those, we'll get a more complete information. But uh, you know, the strength—not a lot of strength in, in CPI is going to transfer there. So overall, pretty neutral. And uh, and to our conversation of why the market was doing what it was doing, I think uh, when you kind of going back to digging down within the components, you had a lot of these kind of more volatile components showing a monthly increase: the used cars, the airfares which added strength. And uh, I think most people probably expect that to not be a like a permanent fixture. So um, again, we've managed to find something to look past and, and <laughs> in, in, you know, like the strength and inflation and, and uh, markets are kind of, kind of behaving in a, uh, in a benign way, I guess. I know we discussed this a little bit last week following the Fed minutes, which kind of brought about, um, you know, hinting, we get went back to that old like thinking about thinking about talking about thinking about um, slowing the pace of quantitative tightening, and we've had a couple of other Fed presidents kind of weigh in on that um, over the last week or so. What's your updated view on on um, you know what the likely path of an end QT might look like? So over the weekend, we had uh, Dallas Fed's Lori Logan, who used to be the manager of the. Fed Soma portfolio to New York Fed previously, uh, she pretty much gave a speech saying uh, the, the main takeaway from the speech was that uh, repeating the, what was in the minutes that we have to start paying attention to the factors that uh, would lead to an eventual tapering of QT. Um, you know, we have to be kind of cautious and we might even have to lower the pace of monthly rundowns so we can stretch the program a little bit long, longer. But what markets took away from that was uh, the same message that the Fed's kind of gearing up to and uh, now they're officially trying to figure out when the end of the balance sheet rundown process would be. As I mentioned last week, we still expect it to be June. Uh, and markets kind of priced that to swap spreads widen. So treasuries doing better. Better. Uh, you had things uh, like market can price in form of balance sheet pressures in the form of different money market spreads in, in forward space. Those are kind of showing some loosening of forward balance sheet expectations so uh you know we were moving that direction as we as we thought we would uh but you know come this week on on wednesday new york face john williams gave a speech not entirely contradicting but saying listen we're not even close to ending qt uh we still have some ways to go there's still money in the rp facility um so it's like i said it's not exactly contradicting but at the same time it's slightly conflicting we I think it's just more of a pushback against some uh, views that uh, people were mentioning, at some views that QT might end as soon as March. We never thought that was the case. We still don't think him saying 
Uh, they're not even, you know, close to ending QT. No one really insinuated that in our view. Uh, June is still far away out and they have to pay attention to uh, things like what's going on in money markets, not just the RRP facility. There's clearly a little bit of uh, pressure brewing, but not nothing too crazy. So June is still a, you know, still our base case for when we would start seeing balance sheet wind down. And uh, at the same time, I do want to kind of contrast between the two speakers, right? John Williams, of course, is the uh, New York Fed's president, is a very like well, well-established economist. But at the same time, Lori Logan, she has been in the weeds with this stuff, right? Like managing the small portfolio on a daily basis. A lot of her job was just making sure that uh, the plumbing of the system is also behaving well from from our city to New York Fed. So I think she has a lot, a little bit more of a kind of a hands-on approach in the past. Uh, you know, they've seen how this thing went down in 2019, and maybe they're seeing similar signs that they did back then too. Nothing uh, groundbreaking, just there's a little bit of a internal drama within the Fed. Some people are saying maybe it's time to look at uh, when to end. Some people are saying, no, not even close. Um, we think June. Uh, so uh, in the coming weeks, I'm sure we'll get a couple more updates uh, let's get through the January Fed meeting first. But I'll switch to the UK as next week we're gearing for a, a week with a decent amount of data, some key releases. And do you think they're going to matter for markets and, and for the BOE imaging? Yeah, I think in some ways it's been a little bit of a boring start for the year in the UK. I mean, obviously, there's been plenty of supply. There's been plenty of supply everywhere. Um, but we haven't really had much to go on in terms of the kind of macro backdrop. We haven't had a huge amount of data. We really haven't heard from many central bank speakers at all. Um, I'll come back to that, I think. Um, but yeah, like you say, next week we'll change that. It's kind of the key data week of the month. We'll get inflation and labor market data um, and retail sales as well. But I think those first two are probably perhaps more important from a market's perspective. Um, we're expecting both of them to um, come off. If you remember back in middle of December, we got the inflation print for November, which surprised to the downside quite significantly. Um, we now have, you know, headline CPI trending very much in the right direction towards the Bank of England's target. We think it gets there by kind of early to middle of, of 2024. Um, and we think that this week or next week, rather, uh, depending when you're listening to this, um, inflation will headline will print at 3.6%. Core will still be slightly higher, but probably sub 5%. Um, and we have wage inflation, which I think will be the most watched indicator within the labour market statistics. I mean, obviously, there's a huge amount of uncertainty around the ONS data at the moment. Um, but uh, we expect average weekly earnings, the headline measure, um, to fall by about half a percentage point as well. So all in a, a data set that I think the BOE will like uh, and certainly helps support the market's narrative of the last couple of months that you know rate cuts are definitely the the next move um and that they could come you know potentially soon-ish i suppose um for the market i think today's reaction to us cpi is quite telling you know we haven't really managed to sustain much of a sell-off and find the the kind of beat to consensus wasn't or the number wasn't necessarily particularly strong or beat consensus by very much. Um, but it's giving a feel of a market that perhaps is back to wanting to kind of rally and, and push rates lower. And so if we get the kind of data that that we're expecting, um, I think that that could, could trigger a rally um, really across the curve in, in the UK. Um, for the Bank of England, how much does this data matter? Well, 
um it's it's difficult to know how the bank's kind of rhetoric has changed over the last month or so because we really haven't heard anything from them um you know there's been no speakers on the calendar from a monetary policy perspective essentially since before we had that downside surprise on the inflation data um, we did hear from Governor Bailey this week um, and Sarah Breed, and they were in front of the Treasury Select Committee, but in their capacity as um, response, you know, as their responsibility for um, financial stability rather than monetary policy. Of course, that didn't stop them commenting on monetary policy as well. But um, what we did hear, I don't think, was particularly different from Bailey. He talked about the need to be vigilant against the risks to, you know, second round risks to inflation. Um, he also talked quite tellingly, I think, around the potential impact that the current shipping disruptions might have on inflation and monetary policy. And that's important, especially for the BOE, when we consider that most of the um, downside surprises that we've had in inflation so far have been about goods inflation. And so if we start to see that tick back up again at the same time while service price inflation is still high, um, then clearly you get a, a less favourable trajectory than the one that we seem to be on right now. Um, but for the Bank of England, the reason why I say I don't know that next week's data necessarily changes all that much is because for me, they've been most concerned in recent weeks, not about what kind of spot data is telling us, but about, still about the way in which they see the risks skewed and still about the risks that they see around the labour market. And I think until we get through um, kind of Q1 and the early year wage setting processes, the Bank of England won't be comfortable signalling that rate cuts could be coming anytime particularly soon. You know, if you think back to this time last year, it was at this point that we had all the big upside surprises on the wage inflation data. And that will still be looming large, I think, in, in the minds of the policymakers. Um, and that's really why we see them retaining this kind of hawkish narrative, even as the data turns. Now, of course, two or three months in a row of very favourable inflation data makes it increasingly difficult for them to be as hawkish as they were being in, say, early November. Um, but I don't think that they drop that narrative particularly quickly, even if we do get headline inflation next week at around 3.6% as, as we're expecting. And not only in the US, I'm going to switch gears a little bit, but in the UK, it's also an election year and, and conversations around elections have been uh, have been ramping up. So what's new on that front? Uh, what, what are the developments that we've been hearing? Yeah, or at least we think it will be an election year. <laughs> Most likely it will be. Uh, they have to hold the election by January 2025. But, you know, all, um, uh, you know, all I think it's relatively strong consensus now that it will be held in the second half of 2024. Um, so we've got a long nine months of discussing the ins and outs of all the different um, policies and, and plans. Um, you know, somewhat differently, I guess, to the conclusion that we would probably come to if we were discussing the US election. I think from a market's perspective, although, you know, a lot can change in nine months, as we know, and there will clearly be volatility around different headlines and different policy announcements, etc. Actually, from a market's perspective, I don't expect this the election outcome to move the needle all that much. And really what I'm thinking about that from is a kind of fiscal policy perspective. And partly that's because I think, you know, at the moment, the polls have quite a clear front runner. And so, you know, it's not like in the US where there's a lot of uncertainty over the next 
10, 11 months and it's not necessarily all that clear what the outcome is going to be. Um, it feels a bit different in the UK. The polls are quite telling. There's, there's a large gap. Um, but also because, you know, when we think about the fiscal room available, um, there really is very little headroom for any government to spend especially more or raise particularly more money on the bond market. You know, we already have a Conservative government that really spent, have spent more than you would usually consider for a Conservative government. And we have a Labour government that is, you know, at the moment suggesting that they too will abide by the fiscal rules of having debt to GDP falling by the fifth year, um, which means that they've already had to water down some of their spending commitments. You know, this 28 billion um, investment plan has already been scaled back slightly in terms of becoming a phased in plan by the end of the term, etc. And all of this is because, you know, the lasting impact of the trust legacy is to kind of shore up fiscal orthodoxy, we think, across the, the political spectrum. And, you know, both sides of that political spectrum learn where the red line is when it comes to the fiscal spending that, that markets will allow. And, you know, that means that whoever is in power following the election um, will have very little fiscal headroom to play with. We're already in a kind of major regime shift when it comes to the supply outlook. Um and that won't change, really, I don't think, what, whatever the outcome of the election is. So there'll clearly be a lot more, you know, back and forth in the press over the next seven, eight, nine months, however long it, it takes before we have this election. But but really, I think, you know, from a fiscal impact and from a supply perspective, it, it doesn't do all that much to um, move the needle. Um, but like I say, I'm sure that that's a topic that we will return to many times over the next, well, best part of a year, both here and in the US, of course, as well. Um, so perhaps with that, we can move over to Europe this week. Um, it's been a quiet, a relatively quiet week, I suppose, as well in Europe from a kind of data perspective. It's obviously been very heavy for supply, but perhaps we'll come on to that in a minute. Um We've been focusing in the latter part of this week as supplies quieting down a bit more on central bank speak. Um, we've heard from people at opposite ends of the kind of hawk dove spectrum. Um, how do you kind of read into what we've heard this week and, and what does that um, or how does that change your view or otherwise, I guess, for the timing and, and scope of easing in Europe, Joanne? I do think it's been a fairly interesting week in terms of ECB speakers, uh, at least I think in terms of two things. One, the more the, or the, the people on the committee that don't necessarily have as big an influence have made comments that have been but, but fairly marked and moving. And also, I think in terms of their comments as well, uh, we heard from doves and hawks. And I think the overall picture does seem skewed a bit more dovish uh, at this point in time, I think, versus where we were in the past. Um, the ECB Centino, I think, was fairly interesting. The key there really was that he did note that wage inflation data, whilst you know that comes out in May, we do get an early indication of what we should see in the May data of earlier than May, which does suggest that these rate cuts could come early, early in the year, which I suppose is in line with our key view. And that's not necessarily too surprising to hear from a dove. But I think what was more in interesting was that the Central Bank of Croatia's governor had very, not very similar thoughts, but similar thoughts as a hawk, where he did note that 
um, wage developments were important, but that actually the March forecast round, where the forecasts are likely to be moving downwards, as well as where they'd have a fairly good idea of the wage inflation data as well. Um, he did note that, you know, the wage data was not what the ECB w- would be looking for in terms of a sw- single data point to make that decision on but actually uh, cuts would come even before that final data point is put in and that's actually quite dovish I think coming from a hawk on the committee um, and I, I think that is really telling that this early cut story is, is not necessarily one that only the doves buy in the committee but really that the hawks might be slowly coming on side um, the more I suppose influential members to Schnabel did seem a bit more balanced and Beauvoir as well wasn't giving too much away but I do think weighing where the doves or the less influential doves and hawks in the committee are that really does seem to have moved um, towards a more dovish side versus where they were previously so I think um, our expectation for early cuts um, really is continuing to hold we don't necessarily think that you know March will be the day that it happens but I do think that we think it's a first point where it could become a possibility so our kind of March April likelihood is is fairly balanced but I do think that the early cut narrative is becoming more and more common within the committee itself. Luckily it won't be all that long before uh, we see how that early cut narrative does or doesn't play out. Um, I mentioned it before as well but the Clearly, the other main focus of of this week has been supply. Um, We've had plenty of it, I think. I'm sure someone's going to fact check me now, but I think I'm right in saying that um, Wednesday was the biggest um, supply day for European paper on record. Um, Although we've had some concessions in terms of the move and outright yields, it feels like that supply across the board has been relatively well absorbed. Um, What are your kind of takeaways from this week? So, like you said, it's really been a standout week in terms of supply, uh, meeting lots of, uh, beating lots of past numbers. Um, I think we've basically seen a doubling in supply this week versus last week. And I think, you know, at the early start part of the week when there wasn't too much going on besides supply, we did see rates being uh, long and rates weighing a bit on the back of supply. But it does seem to me that it is being absorbed fairly well. In fact, I think the kind of mild sell-off we saw at the start of the week was fairly muted given how much supply we've seen relative to previous weeks. Um, and so I do think that the market does seem fairly well positioned and poised to take in the supply at this stage. Um, it does seem like you said that um, the market, again, is very much looking forward to the rate cutting narrative and is trying to front load that just to some extent, uh, perhaps creating demand that, in, that, in that element. Uh, so to me, even though I think supply for this year continues to be, to be heavy, it does seem like the weight of supply will be, at least for now, less um, less heavy or will impact markets less, given where uh, markets are thinking about in terms of rate cuts and really positioning for the end of the cycle uh, at this stage, uh, stage of, the, of the year. Um, so yeah, there's plenty more supply to come. We've revised our supply numbers. We've got an update from Spain. So we're, we're adding 7 billion to our growth supply estimate. So I think the key picture for supply really is one that we've said many times before. There's a lot to come, uh, but it seems like for now, uh, the demand does seem to be there given that this is the start of the year. Lots more supplies to come and a theme that we will return to in future pods. Um, but that's probably enough for this week. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you to our listeners for listening in. Just a reminder, if you liked today's episode, please don't forget to hit the like button and click subscribe so you can get the latest episodes as soon as they're available. Thanks. See you next week.